Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, welcome to everyone watching by way of the Sherwood Forest campus, the congregation there. We welcome you. Welcome to everyone at the Clemens Clemens campus. In 2019, we began a, uh, a new focus for the life of our church, as we have just heard, entitled, Go, the World is Waiting. We uh, are focusing on sharing the good news of the gospel. And so our life groups are studying a uh, a curriculum entitled Life on Purpose so that they are able to share the gospel of grace more effectively. And we're looking together at what the gospel of grace means and why it matters through this series. Jesus teaches, as we've seen, that his gospel has exclusive power to change the destinies of people. And so our sharing that gospel of grace matters. We've looked together at uh, Jesus' conversation with a woman at the well at the very beginning of our series. Today, we're going to end our series with a look at Jesus' conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18 will be our focus for today. You'll find that on page 887 in the worship Bibles given to you as you enter the Sherwood Forest campus or underneath the chair in front of you. Uh, as you are in the Clemens campus. Uh, You may recall, as you may recall, in the larger passage of John 3 and John 4, Jesus has two very distinct conversations with two very different people. The first with a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was a Jew. The second with an unnamed woman who was a Samaria, a Samaritan who lived in Samaria. She was a person of mixed race. As we saw at the start of the series, these two could not have been any different. Nicodemus was a Jewish male in a, in a Jewish-dominated culture. He was highly educated. He was a high-profile leader. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the equivalent of the uh, Jews' Supreme Court. So he was at the very top of the religious hierarchy. He was publicly applauded, publicly sought. He was a person with great power. He was the one everyone wanted to be near and everyone wanted to be with. He was an insider's insider. This woman, however, was a member of a hated race. She was illiterate. She was a woman in a Jewish-dominated culture. She was publicly despised. She was publicly ostracized because of her repeated sexual failures. She was, in truth, an outcast of the outcasts. So these were two very, very different people. Yet, 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 at the same time as we've seen, these two very different people shared a very common set of realities. Number one, they both had a sense of a need for something more. And number two, Jesus saw them in their need. Jesus saw them in their need. And so their stories actually become powerful stories to us and and lessons for us 
of the importance of the imperative of seeing and meeting people right where they are. It is what Jesus did. It is what his followers should always do as well. Our focus today is going to be on this conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus. Uh, perhaps you know the story. Perhaps you know it well. He was kind of a religious superstar, if you will, to kind of set the context. He, Jesus has just done the unthinkable before this conversation happens. He has gone to the temple. He has cleaned out the temple of money changers and, and animal sellers, folks who sold animals for sacrifice. He used a whip and drove people out of the temple. He used physical force, turned tables over, sent money scattering everywhere, animals scattering everywhere. And the Jewish leaders confront him and they say to him, essentially, who do you think you are? And uh, yet the people, the great mass of people who are watching him, they're wondering the same thing. They're wondering who he is because he seems to be a powerful prophet. Nicodemus, who is this ruling leader, he comes to Jesus, the scripture tells us by night, and he comes to him with a series of questions. These questions actually reveal what's going on in Nicodemus's heart. And so this becomes a powerful, powerful picture of Jesus engaging a person with power and plenty after we've seen Jesus engage a person who was powerless and without much at all. I want us to take our Bibles, turn then to uh, John chapter 3. Let's begin at the end of verse 2. The scripture says, Nicodemus came to him by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Listen, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him and said, Nicodemus, are you the teacher, the teacher? of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Today, I want to close our time together in this series by looking at Jesus' call to go and make disciples by looking at the goal behind our going at the goal behind our going. This is important. You've probably realized this in your own personal life, but if you are ever going to accomplish anything, if you're ever going to be consistent in what you do with your life, you're going to have to have goals. Goals keep us focused. Goals keep us moving forward in meaningful ways and meaningful directions. If believers don't have proper spiritual goals, we tend to drift here and drift there. And, and our lives at the end of, of, of them will simply be the story of a lot of drifting and accomplishing very little when God has called us to make an eternity's worth of difference. 
I want us to look today at the ultimate goal behind this going that Jesus calls us to. And I want to say to you that the reason this is so important is what we're going to talk about today is the one thing, the one thing, the most important thing that you can give your life to if you're a follower of Jesus. It is the one thing you should give your life to as a follower of Jesus. If you don't give your life to anything else, this is the one thing. This is the one thing you should give your life to. When you stand finally before the Father and you give an account of your life, this is the most important thing He will be looking for from you. And this matters for that reason, if only that reason alone. Let me say to you, though, at the same time, what I'm going to be sharing with you today is very very controversial. It is very controversial, even increasingly among followers of Jesus. I saw a report recently from the Barna Research Group who uh, interviewed and uh, took a poll of active American Christians in the United States, and they found three things. They found, number one, that uh, virtually 100% of active American Christians say that uh, uh, they believe that part of their task as a follower of Jesus is to be a witness about Jesus with their lives. Number two, they found that virtually all of them agreed that the best thing that could ever happen to anybody else is to know Jesus. But thirdly, they found that among millennials, nearly half of millennials believe that evangelism is wrong. It's wrong to share your personal faith beliefs with another person of another faith, hoping that their faith will become your faith one day. It's wrong, in other words, to go with the gospel of Jesus to the world. Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to your life, but it's wrong to tell anyone or to share your faith with them to invite them to know him. And this is what is, is called cognitive dissonance by social psychologists where you believe two things that oppose each other and you try to figure out uh, a way to live making them work. It creates stress. So we're going to be exploring a, a pretty controversial question, even for believers, something that, that wasn't always controversial. But we're going to be asking this question, what's the ultimate goal of going with the gospel to the world according to Jesus? What is the ultimate goal that God has for us of going with the gospel to the world according to Jesus? And now another way of putting that, another important way of putting that is this, what is the single most important thing I can do with my life? What is the single most important thing, if I'm a follower of Jesus, that I can do with my life? What's the single most important thing? When all is said and done, if I've left everything else out, what is the single most important thing I should never leave out? All right, here we go. In this uh, conversation this morning, we, as we watch Jesus encounter Nicodemus, we see plainly that the goal of the gospel that he came to make real is a new birth, 
a new birth. And, and in this passage, Jesus reveals three things to us consequently. Uh, what the new birth is, how this new birth actually comes, and why the new birth is needed. God's goal with the gospel is something called a new birth. And every believer ought to know what it is, how it comes, and why it's needed. And every person on the planet ought to know what it is, how it comes, and why the new birth is needed. Now, this is important. I want you to notice a distinction right from the very beginning this morning. This is, the new birth is God's goal for the gospel. The question we're asking is, what is the single most important thing I can do? Not, what is the single most important thing I can be or person I can be, but what is the single most important thing I can do, and I'm going to give you a heads up, it's distinct from God's goal in the gospel. He has a goal for you, but it's distinct, but God's goal is a new birth. We want to look at all three of these this morning, and we want to begin with what the new birth is, what the new birth is. Look with me at verses three through eight, three through eight again, beginning with verse three, what the new birth is. Jesus answered him, verse three, answered his question, well, actually answered his greeting. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is an odd, this is an odd thing. You're reading this passage. Nicodemus comes. He's very respectful. He's very polite. He says, Jesus, we've been watching you and, and many of us believe that you are something special. He calls him a rabbi when Jesus is not a trained rabbi. And so he's being very honoring of Jesus. And Jesus pops back with this statement, no one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, unless he's born a second time, unless he's born from above, unless he's birthed by the power of God. This is, this is a strange response. He doesn't say, well, it's good to meet you. He simply says what he says. And what it shows us is that Jesus is not responding to Nicodemus's words. He's responding to Nicodemus's thoughts. And clearly what is on Nicodemus's mind is something called seeing the kingdom of God. Now, seeing the kingdom of God is important for you. It was important for Nicodemus. It, it means how do I live forever in the presence of the God who is king over this universe? I don't want to miss God, Nicodemus is saying. And so he shows a great deal of wisdom and a great deal of humanity because one of the things that I know about you and me and Nicodemus and everybody else is that we're all looking for something more than we can see, taste, touch, or feel. That is Nicodemus. It's, it's, it's powerful. He, he wants to know what Jesus knows about it. He is the teacher in Israel. He is one of the best educated men, one of the most religious men, one of the most pious men. And, 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 and still he's not sure. Uh, he, along with the other uh, Jews, believed that God would one day usher in the kingdom of God and God would send a king and establish the kingdom. They believed that if they lived a right way, if they lived a correct way, then, then, then God would give them a place in his kingdom, but they would have to earn it with their good deeds. And, and so he, he found himself a member of the right race, the Jewish people, God's people. He was a religious professional with all the credentials anyone could want. And uh, yet he still wants to know, how can a person be sure he or she will see the kingdom of heaven? And this is so odd. This is a man who has it all. Power, 
influence, wealth, position, acclaim, everything. And he wants to know what matters for eternity. He's a religious man, and he wants to know what matters for eternity. It's the strangest thing, but it's not the strangest thing. How many of you have ever, let's try, let's do this. How many of you ladies have ever heard of Tom Brady? How many of you ladies say, I have no idea who that is? Oh, good. This is better than the first service. We're doing well. Um, he's really nobody special. He's won, you know, six Super Bowl rings and um, done what nobody else has ever done and is considered to be uh, probably the greatest quarterback to have ever lived. That's all, just only who he is. Um, in case you didn't know him and you're too embarrassed to say you don't know who he is. Uh, but that's Tom Brady. And uh, it was interesting. I, I, I saw an interview that he did about 2005. And then I saw an interview he did about tw- 2015. In 2005, he was 27. He'd only won three Super Bowls. I feel so sorry for him. <laughs> Just three. Just three. And uh, they did an interview, and the interviewer said to him, all right, you're 27, you've won three Super Bowls. How has this impacted your life? I mean, what has this meant for your life? What's been the consequence for you? Has it changed you at all? What what does this mean for you? And uh, it was fascinating because uh, if you read the transcripts, you can still get them today. If you read the transcripts, it was on 60 Minutes. He he pauses and and he, he thinks out loud and he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater and better out there for me? I mean, he said, a lot of people say, this is it. You've done it. You've accomplished it. And he said, it's true. This is what I've dreamed for all my life. Just one, and I've got three. And yet I still find myself thinking, God, there's got to be something more than this. I mean, if this is it, then it's not all it's cracked up to be. Is this all there is for me? And, and the uh, interviewer said, well, well, what's your answer? He said, I don't know. I don't know. Ten years later, in another interview, he was asked what he believes. And he says, I still don't know. I just saw an article on him in the, uh, I think it was the Washington Post that says now football has become for him his religion and that he, he's trying to find meaning in his life through football and that that's kind of where he's come from. He's, he's trying to find it there. It's a very interesting, powerful, powerful story. But here, here's the point. The point is whether you're a woman at a, at a well with nothing or whether you're Nicodemus or Tom Brady with everything All of us, all of us, all of us have a hunger for more than what we're able to get out of this life. It's true of you. It's true of me. Uh, so, So what is Jesus' answer to this question? This is important. What does it take to see the kingdom of God? He says, you must be born again. You must be born again. And for Nicodemus, this is absolutely shocking. First, Jesus is alleging that Nicodemus needs more than what he's already got, which he believes, but remember, cognitive dissonance. At the same time, everybody's telling him he's got everything everybody else wants. 
You mean I, I need some improvement? Yes, Jesus says. You, you need some. And the improvement you need, actually, you need a, a change. The change that you need, you can't give to yourself. Well, that blows his, his world apart because he's always taught, he's always been taught, and he's always taught that what you do with your life is what God does with you later. You can do it. You can do it. Work hard. Be disciplined. Follow the, uh, the rules of the Old Testament. Follow the rules of your culture. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. He didn't. He didn't. He could not, he could not get this. It's so counter to what he's taught and what he's been taught. Jesus says, and this is interesting, look at verse 10. Jesus says, this is something you should have gotten. He says, don't marvel at this. Why, why are you not getting this, Nicodemus? Why are you not getting this? You're a nationally famous teacher of the Old Testament. And, and, and you don't get this? Why The idea of being born again is actually found in the Old Testament. And yet, Nicodemus says, how? How can a man be born again? How can a man go back and, and, and to his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus' response is found in verses 5 to 8. And it's key to understanding what this new birth is. Let's look at it again. He says, verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of, of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Listen, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who finds themselves born of the spirit. So Jesus is making plain to Nicodemus something he should know. I'm not talking about physical new birth. I'm talking about a spiritual new birth. Nicodemus ought to have known this again because he was the teacher that he was. Now, why should he have known it? Well, because of what Ezekiel 36, a well-known passage. This is what Ezekiel said. This, these are the words of God. He said, I'm, I'm going to lay out to Ezekiel a promise. This is going to come. The day's going to come when I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit, and I will put that new spirit within you. And I will remove from you a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and watch this, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules for life, my good rules for life. God, God isn't saying his rules don't work. What God is saying is my rules will never work if you try to follow my rules in your own strength. You're going to have to have my spirit living within you. He's the one who causes and enables and empowers you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my good rules for life. God's promise is that a spiritual birth is coming, a birth that is marked by the use of water and marked by the Spirit. This is important. It involves four things specifically. It involves a cleansing, a transformation, an indwelling, and a restoration. A cleansing, first, of sin. It involves a transformation, secondly, of the heart. It involves, thirdly, the indwelling of God's own spirit so that there comes about a restoration of the human relationship with God. This is what God promises. This is what Jesus refers to when he says you must be 
born again or born from above. Without a cleansing from our past, we will never be uh, joined to God in a relationship. We'll always be separated. Without a transformed heart, we will always be going back to our sin even after God cleanses us. And without the Holy Spirit enabling us, we will never be protected or persistent in this new relationship God gives. And so he says to Nicodemus, this is part of God's plan. This is part of God's purpose. You must be born again. If you're going to enjoy eternity with God, you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't like this because it gives him nothing to do. It just gives him things to receive, a cleansing, a transformation, an indwelling, a restoration. It tells him that his good deeds can't overpower his bad deeds. His religious practices for God don't give him a relationship with God. His passionate uh, law-keeping, his acts of piety, his, his spiritual knowledge, his good deeds, even his great deeds for God, none of those things actually count. None of those things are actually going to give him a place in the kingdom of a holy God. And so there's a series of vital lessons that start to emerge from this passage even here. We expect, don't we, the, the poor failed woman to come running to Jesus, say, my life is all messed up, it is bashed up. I need somebody to put it back together for me. We expect that, but we don't expect Nicodemus to do that. But what this story shows us, these two chapters in particular, that being full of everything that the world can give doesn't mean having a full life. Being full of religion and religious practice and good works doesn't mean that you can be sure about your destiny. Be very, very careful. The emptiest people on the planet are not the, just the poorest or the most broken. Some of the emptiest people on the planet are those who have the most money, are those who have the brightest minds, and those who have the greatest fame. Some of the emptiest people on the planet are those who are full of religion and are in church every Sunday, but they're empty. And what every one of those people needs is what Jesus gives through his gospel, a new life, a fresh start that begins with a new birth. A new life, a fresh start that begins with a new birth. A new birth that God carries out in us. He takes dead hearts and he makes them live. He comes like a wind by his spirit and blows through our lives, giving us power and the capacity to live the life that is full and is free in a relationship with him. So every person whose heart cries out, I, I need something more to every one of them. Jesus says, anyone can have it, but no one can get it without me. Anyone can have it, but no one can get it without me. You must be born again. It all begins with a radical transformation of your life. That is what the new birth is. And that is what every single one of us needs. We must be born again. We must be born again. We must be radically transformed if we're to have an eternity Spent in relationship with God. You must 
be born again, and you can't do it yourself. God must do it. I love a story from, uh, from American history about the 18th century. There was a great evangelist by the name of George Whitfield. He could speak to 40,000 people at one time and be heard. Talk about a voice. I struggle with talking to 500 with a microphone. I mean, he could, he, it was amazing, but uh, he had an incredible impact on the United States. In fact, uh, uh, he's been called the spiritual father of, the, uh, of America. Uh, George Whitfield, uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was not a believer, would go to hear him preach, and he would empty his pockets for the orphans in Georgia just listening to uh, Whitfield preach. He said, I'll give a little bit, and then he said, I'll give some more, and he did he just wind up giving everything. Well, one day a man came to George Whitfield, and, and the man said, why do you keep preaching? You must be born again. 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 Every time I hear you preach, you're saying, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. What, what, what's with that? Why do you keep preaching the same thing over and over again? Whitfield said, because you must be born again. You must be born again. That's God's plan. That is God's goal for his gospel. But how does that come? And that is is the uh, next question that uh, uh, Nicodemus asks. He asks the how question. Look at verses 9 to 17. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him and said, are you the teacher of Israel? Yet you don't understand these things? Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, that is me, the Son of Man. Listen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus cautioned not to marvel at his insistence that people must be born again, verse 7 brings another question from Nicodemus, and it's basically how. It's basically how. How can these things be? Verse 9, Nicodemus is getting exasperated. He's getting frustrated. It's so counter to everything he knows and counter to everything he knew about faith and religion. He just can't get it. How can these things happen? Jesus tells him that he knows because He's been with the Father. He knows both the Father's plan and the Father's goals for life, the plan and the the goal of the God of heaven. And, And this is his plan and goal. You must be born again. A relationship with God for eternity rests right here. You must be born again. But notice, Jesus graciously answers Nicodemus' final question in verses 13, 14, and 15. And alluding to the story of Moses interceding for Israel after their famous rebellion in the wilderness, when God sent poisonous snakes to judge the people, 
and then provided a way of salvation by having a, a bronze serpent fashioned on a pole and lifting that up for all to see who would by faith look to it so that they could be saved, so they could be healed from, from uh, this judgment. Jesus says in the same way, look at this, verses 14 and 15, in the same way as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, the only way for these things to happen, for a new birth and a new life from above to be possible is for Jesus, the Son of Man, God's Messiah, to experience a crucifixion and experience a resurrection. This is how God makes the way for cleansing from sin. This is how God makes the way for transformation of a rebellious heart. This is how God brings about the indwelling of his Holy Spirit in a person's life. This is how the relationship is restored. Christ dies. Christ is raised again. He's lifted up. He's raised up. He's raised to die, raised again to live so that he might meet this need that all the world has. It's only through this lifting up, this crucifixion of the Son of God and faith in him alone that brings this radical life transformation. Now, it's now that Jesus gives this beautiful, beautiful and famous explanation of the gospel of grace. Do you see it? Verse 16, for listen, you want to know how? I've got to be lifted up. Let me tell you why. For God so loved this world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Listen, God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is how the new birth is found, by looking to God's saving grace through faith in the crucified and resurrected Christ. This is how it comes. This is how it comes. Nicodemus, are you listening? This is how it comes. I didn't come to judge you. I came to save you. That's the good news. Now, chances are, if you were raised in church, they told you you ought to memorize John 3.16. And you might have memorized John 3.17, but I doubt if there are very many people who are told to memorize John 3. 18, which is really a shame because the good news is never good until the bad news is really bad. I want you to see with me finally why the, the new birth is needed. Jesus does not leave it out. He says, verse 18, whoever believes in him, in the Son of Man that God sent, the Son of God, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus rounds out his famous statement of the gospel with a portion that is so often ignored, this bad news of verse 18 
in view of the good news of John 3, 16 and 17. He says that it's true, it's true, it's true that God, verse 17, didn't send his son to condemn the world, to be its judge, but to be its savior. It's true, it's true. Everyone, Jesus says, apart from faith in him is already now though in a divine state of condemnation. Why? Because they haven't made use of the only cure for their sin condition, separation from God, faith in the crucifixion. Christ. So Christ's coming and his dying mean that the greatest human need there is has been met for all time by the love of God and the infinite sacrifice of Jesus for sinners. His death on the cross, his, the giving of his perfect life is more than enough to cover every sin ever committed by anyone. But, but, It's only available to those who receive this love and receive this sacrifice to those who are born again. When they do, though they are sinners, they don't perish. They don't live destined to separation from God. But because Jesus took their place, they aren't judged, they aren't condemned. For eternity, they're safe. They're safe. But for everyone who doesn't, the message is the same. You must be born again because if you haven't come to faith in Christ, you are even now condemned because of your sin. Tom Schreiner is a New Testament uh, scholar at uh, Southern Seminary. And I saw this, this powerful quote and I thought, well, it's, 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 it needs to be shared about this particular passage, John 3, 18, he, he makes this comment. Not believing in the God-sent Son is tantamount to, to self-condemnation. God is not to blame, but rather the unbeliever. Humans remain responsible agents. No one is compelled to believe. Ultimately, our condition of sin before a holy God is our doing. We have brought ourselves into that condition. God in his great grace and in his great mercy has given us a way through his son. Condemnation ends, judgment ends, freedom comes, restoration comes, cleansing comes, when by faith you put your trust in this crucified, resurrected Christ. This is uh, the most painful part of going into the world with the gospel. I remember back in 1989, I was a student at Oxford and uh, I was visiting uh, with one of my cousins. She was over to study in London, and so I went from Oxford to London to, to spend some time with her, and we were walking through Hyde Park. Have you ever been to Hyde Park? It's that famous uh, place in London where you can say anything you want to say. You get, a, you get a soapbox, and you just go for it. And if you can, if you can gather a crowd, gather a crowd. Uh, so Speaker's Corner, there are just all kinds of people, all kinds of 
people talking about all kinds of things. It's really a, an interesting, sometimes scary, sometimes entertaining place. So we were walking through Hyde Park, and I noticed an American, because being an American, you notice Americans. Uh, we're typically, well, I won't say that. Uh, Americans, you notice Americans, and there was a guy standing on a great big box, and he had a chart with him, and he was, he was talking, and, I, and as we got closer, I realized he was sharing the gospel. But the way he was doing it wasn't working. It was as if he was yelling at everyone, which, you know, yelling only works if there's a fire. And um, so I, it just... He didn't have a very big crowd, and the little group of people that he did have was starting to break up, and, and uh, Rachel and I were just standing there listening to him, and, and uh, as he got down to like two or three people, he finally got down from his box, and he walked up to me, and he said, uh, you want to try this? I thought, good night. Uh, why are you asking? I guess I look like uh, an American preacher. I don't know. I was... I, he said, you want to try this? Well, I thought, well, first of all, my reaction was no. I'm, I'm, on, uh, I'm, on, uh, I'm visiting with my cousin. We're here to see London. And then it dawned on me that I'm a disciple and I've been called to go. And that means going even on top of a box in a Hyde Park with three people who can't stand what they just heard. And, and that's it. And other people, uh, you know, leaving because this guy's yelling at them. So I thought, well, I don't have three points. I, I don't but I'll do it. I'll just, so there I went. And I, I tell you, I got up on this soapbox and then I said to myself, well, what am I going to do now? What world will I do now? So I started asking questions. I started going, what's the point of this life of ours? What's the point? I started driving home that point, like, you know, like, um, uh, I don't know, Camus might do or Sartre might do or, you know, some existentialists. I just started asking these questions. Well, I started to get a crowd and the crowd started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The bigger it got, the more nervous I got. And because uh, I didn't know where I was going. You know, this is one of those times where the scripture says, you know, don't worry about it. Just go. I'll give you the words. That's what happened. I mean, I just went. I just went with it and said, all right, here we go. What, what can they do? Beat me up? I, I don't know. But here we go. So I, I got this crowd, and, I, and finally I got to share the gospel. And, uh, and as I was winding things down, I said, and if you'd be interested to talk with me after this, I'd love to talk with you. I'll be right here. And uh, a young woman by the name of Michelle stayed. And she said, tell me more. I, I was listening to what you said, and it really intrigues me. Tell me more. So I began to unpack what I had said, and she asked some questions, and I continued to unpack, and then I shared the gospel again, and I said, would you, are you, are, are you willing to put your faith in Christ? She said, no, I still have questions. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Um, will you give me your address, and can I send you just some books that I think will help you given the, the questions that you've got? And she said, yeah, that'd be fine. So she gave me her address. When I got back, uh, I sent her the books. And some months later, I got a postcard from her. And this is what it said. Dear Steve, autumn in London this uh, time last year-ish, when I heard you preaching, it's been almost a year, this postcard will have you looking at the picture on the first flight back here. She's certainly a beautiful city uh, in the change of season. 
I'm returning these books you took so much time and trouble to send to me. I'm hoping you will pass them on to someone who will really benefit from them. Though I may never appreciate the message, I'll certainly never forget the warmth and intention with which they were sent. Thank you. And I've kept that card because it's a painful reminder that as you're going to the world, there will be people who will say to you, no, thank you. That's not for me. I wonder today, whatever happened to Michelle, I wonder where is she? Did the seed seed of the gospel sown into her life, did it ever bear fruit? I pray so. I still remember to pray for her. I, I pray that by God's grace she would step over the line of faith. But that's part of it. There will be people who say no. But there will also always be people who are ready to say yes. And at the end of the day, we're simply called to go on crates in a park in London to your neighbor next door. So Jesus encounters Nicodemus. He gives him the truth. Nicodemus struggles. But in this conversation where Nicodemus did not come to faith in Christ in that conversation, by the way, Many believe he did later, but he did not in this conversation. We get an answer to our question. What is the ultimate goal behind going with the gospel to the world according to Jesus? God's goal is radical transformation. God's goal for the gospel is that by it, people are born again. But what's the ultimate goal behind our going with the gospel to the world according to Jesus? Well, he shows us the goal of our going is a gospel invitation to whole life transformation. You see, when I'm sharing the gospel, it isn't up to me to change another person's life. It isn't up to me to make sure that their lives are, 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 are radically turned upside down. I can't do that. I can't cleanse a person of their sin. I, I can't take their stony heart and turn it into flesh. I can't give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. I can't give them a new relationship with God, but God God can. God is the one who does that. But God, by his grace, has said to me what you can do. Let me handle the transformation. You handle the invitation. I'm not called to transformation. I'm called to invitation. And every person in my life deserves the opportunity to hear the gospel invitation of God through his great son, Jesus, to come, to be made whole, to be made clean, to be set free. Everyone deserves an invitation, even if they don't come to the party. Everyone deserves an invitation. What is the single greatest thing you can do with your life you want to see one of the greatest things I ever did with my life 
Come on. Of all the things that I've ever done, this is one of the greatest. This doesn't make me great. I, I'm not great. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not great. But this is one of the greatest things I've ever done. In fact, this is the greatest thing I've ever done, is to invite someone else to give their lives to Christ, having heard, not my testimony, but having heard the gospel of God's grace in his son. Hey, go for it. Be CEO. Go for it. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked. Absolutely. I'm not against it. What you really want to do, what you really want to do, what you really must do, above all that you do if you're a follower of Jesus, is this. This is the greatest thing you will ever do. It's not life transformation. You can't do it. It's a gospel invitation. Every person seated on the left end of every row has a bucket up under them. I want you to reach under there and take a bucket. And in that bucket, you will find a card. And I want you to take one of those cards and pass it to your right. And pass it to the right. Thank you. You recognize that? You recognize that? <laughs> yeah, and it's also right here on your shirt, flying up. Those are all the center Grovians. We don't call them center Grovers. That's banned. <laughs> center Grovians. <laughs> Going into the world. That's, uh, that represents you. That represents me. Uh, on the back of this card, I want you to reflect on the card of the lost people that are in your life. You remember the card we gave it to you. Lost family, lost friends, lost coworkers, uh, lost acquaintances, people in your uh, social groups that are lost, neighbors, and the people that God's put on your heart. I want to ask you to put their first names on the back of this card. We're going to build a, uh, a prayer, kind of a prayer wall out here in the, uh, we're going to hang a prayer wall out here in the foyer. And uh, every card will be seen this way from the outside. When you flip it over, you'll see all the names. But we want to begin to pray for these as you begin to go and look for those opportunities to make a gospel invitation. Every time you see this, and you'll see it this next Sunday as the Lord is willing, I want it to be a reminder to you that there are people in your life who must be born again. That there are people God has put in your life because he wants you to give them, to extend to them a gospel invitation to come to him. Who does God have in your world? The Nicodemus, 
the woman at the well, the person in between, that God has called you to go to. One day, you and I will stand before the Father. And the most important question, I think, that he will ask, given what I know of his plan and his goal, is not who did you save, but who did you invite to hear, believe, and receive the good news of my gospel of grace? Can I see your card? Let's pray together. Father God, I, uh, I thank you, I bless you that out of your great love and out of your great mercy, you gave to us your son. And then you call us to go to the hungry, to the thirsty, to those who are living, dead, hungry, wanting more trying to find it in so many different places. You've called us to go to them with an invitation to radical life transformation. And my prayer, Father God, is that you would find us faithful to cry out to those with stony hearts, with dead lives, in the name of Jesus, with the gospel of Jesus, come alive. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me all across the room? I want to invite our prayer partners to come and, and position themselves along the front this morning. Perhaps today you're that broken person with a life in a thousand pieces. You're that broken couple with a marriage in a thousand pieces. You're that broken family with a family in a thousand pieces. You're a broken person with a heart in a thousand pieces. And you know, you know, you know, there must be something more. Jesus says to you, I am. You're something more. Come to me by faith. I gave my life for you, stood in your stead, died in your stead. Come to me, and I'll give you eternal life, a new life, a radically transformed life. Maybe you've got it all, more money than you know what to do with, more acknowledgement than you know what to do with, more success than you ever deserved and yet you're still finding yourself going is this it? is this all? 
And Jesus says to you, I am the point of your life. And until you find me, nothing else will ever matter. Come, come, come to me. Lord God, move and work today among your people, my prayer is, in Jesus' name. Work and move among these people, my prayer is, in Jesus' name. Work in such a way that those who need you will come to you and work in such a way, Father, that those who know you will love the people around them enough to invite them to Jesus. I ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kors. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.